Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Aubrey Amstutz is a cognitive linguist and researcher working towards AI fairness. She earned a master's degree in linguistics and cognitive science at the University of Siena in Italy. She's interested in using empirical linguistic research to dispel language myths. This has taken the form of promoting anti-accent stigma in second language development at Duolingo, exploring the downfalls of prescriptive grammar rules in foreign language learning guides, conducting research into anti-bias and discrimination in AI-powered language systems at Microsoft, and most recently in guiding product policy decisions and developing safety strategies for TikTok's text-based features. Topics include creative writing, screenwriting, networking, auditing, administrative academia, the cult of academia, analytical linguistics, content moderation, and prompt engineering. Links to Aubrey's LinkedIn profile and other resources are in the show notes. Today's guest is Aubrey Amstutz, who has been on the show before at part of our fabulous live show earlier this year. Uh, but this time, I wanted to talk to Aubrey specifically about her very um, filled with variety career. Let's call it that. You know, on this <laughs> show, we have talked with many people about this this term job hopping, which I personally hate because I think it sounds um, negative, right? Like, like you can't stick with something, right? You're constantly moving, but in industry, it's such a positive thing. You gain so much experience. You get to work in different places, so many environments. So I haven't thought of a good new term for it yet. If you think of one, tell me, but, um, welcome Aubrey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's such an honor to be asked to share. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you today. It's great. So I will jump in with the question I always ask everybody, which is, uh, and based on, on your educational experience, I'm real curious about this answer. When did you know what linguistics was and decide that that was going to be part of your education? Yeah, so I found out what linguistics was when I was in my bachelor's, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that it was going to be part of my life at that time at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually took a Ling 101 you know, intro class, but I only took it as a prerequisite so that I could take the uh, Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages course. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was mainly interested at at that time in uh, finding a way to go to France and spend some time there. Um, And so (laughs) Uh we'll have to backtrack (laughs) in order to explain this. But (laughs) that was kind of my, my, um, you know, guiding principle at that time. And so when I took Ling 101, I wasn't really invested in it in that way. I wasn't really thinking about it as, um, you know, I didn't understand how it could be applied. Uh, mm-hmm. In a way, I think I, I kind of misunderstood it to be, at the same time, either too applied and too abstract, <laughs> in a way. Um, okay. Because I, the only thing I really knew you could do with it would be, okay, maybe you can teach a language or you can be an SLP. Those are the only things right. I knew, you know, Ling majors did. Um, I had a friend who was a Ling major who was going to be an SLP, and so when I took it. Um, you know, there was a few parts of it that did definitely stand, stand out to me. And I, I thought, you know, whoa, this is kind of changing the way, you know, that I think about language, like the classic, you know, the, like if you change the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the sound over the uh, video of a mouth moving, you'll hear the sound, you know, those types of things were interesting to me, but I didn't understand how they would be kind of relevant to mm-hmm. what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but there was one moment that still really sticks with me. And I have told so many people about this, um, just as a kind of fun fact, 
before I really got into it, um, which was I had a, a TA um, who was a PhD student. And I remember her explaining in our section, you know, when people say that, you know, they're there and there, and this was, you know, a little while ago where I think maybe the whole and I hate this term, but grammar Nazi thing was a little bit more <laughs> uh-huh. um, popular, you know, on Facebook and stuff. There was this sort of superiority, this condescension happening, um, especially in comment sections and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she was saying, you know, they're there and there, and it's an it. They aren't actually grammar mistakes. They're spelling mistakes. And there was hmm. just this kind of like confused silence, you know, where we all like went, huh? And she said, you know, think about a grammar mistake. What happens? Most of the time, there's a breakdown of communication. And if you think of like a second language speaker, when they make a grammar mistake, you may actually not understand. And you have to stop and think about what were they trying to say? Okay, I think this is what they meant. Does that ever happen when they write the wrong there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not that they don't know what word they're trying to look for. They just happen to not remember which spelling was right. And some people aren't mm-hmm. great at spelling. Um, and so this really like was an aha moment for me because she was starting to get into, you know, maybe like optimality theory kind of in a way and, mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. constraints and how they might stack up. Cause she was saying, you know, these are words that sound the same. And so there's kind of this ph- phonological representation and then there's the spelling and there's the orthography and then there's, you know, the grammar and, and how do all these things kind of compete and where do these mistakes come from? So that was one piece that I kind of took as a fun fact and would explain to people, you know, with my new condescension. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's great uh, I got to know, it, I got to out grammar Nazi the grammar Nazis and explain uh, to them <laughs> yeah it, it is it is a thing I mean it, it it seems intuitive to linguists I guess but I think for most people just like normal everyday non-linguist speakers of a language it's so easy to conflate written language and, and spoken language yes. as if yes. the written language is like I don't know the more pure version or something like that yes oh my gosh and, <laughs> and it, it's so hard to convince people People that like well, all language is arbitrary, but written language is even more arbitrary. If you could yes. say that, then the spoken, spoken language, word right? is the real word. Yeah, yeah, and the written stuff exactly. is just like, look, we just invented this weird series of of dashes on a page yes. to represent what we're talking about, and it's all made up, all of it. It doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> it's like yes, language is also made up, but in a different way. <laughs> right, exactly. In yes, a more natural right. way. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I so, just like I think about no that problem. a lot. <laughs> Yes, me too. Me too. Yeah. And I, so that kind of was fun, but like I said, I, I took it as a, you know, a means to an end. Um, and I also really did not enjoy having to try to memorize the IPA. So, you know, this was an intro mm-hmm. class for mm-hmm. people who were also going to be linguists. And for me, it felt like there was kind of a lot of stuff in there that ugh, I was like, what is this for? And this is just, yeah. you know, kind of rote memorization stuff. So it didn't, it didn't really speak to me yet. Um, so I'll kind of backtrack a little bit uh, to explain kind of how I got there. Um, so I have just always been interested in language. Um, I was, you know, writing, always writing as a child. I was writing, you know, poems and short stories. Um, I remember in like, I think <laughs> second grade, I wrote, I found this recently. I wrote a, what I called the comma story, which is where mm-hmm. I added commas after like every single word and I just wrote a story like that (laughs) that was already kind of like experimenting with grammar and like I think my second grade teacher was like all right I guess that's creative writing (laughs) um and so looking back you can kind of see some of those little those little things that you know you you would be sitting there just wondering about you know I wonder you know why this word sounds like this word and what is the and how did it end up and I'm like oh that was etymology you know 
Um, Mm -hmm. And so you see these little interests, but you don't quite know how to weave them into um, you know, a career until you're, you're much mm-hmm. older, of course. So anyway, I, to me, I, um, was really attracted to creative writing, of course. So I was able to do like a summer school program at Cal arts when I was in high school in creative writing. Um, and that really kind of cemented my, um, my interest. And, and I knew that, you know, I really liked spending time with language. And, and I think that's something that mm-hmm. has just been the, the kind of thorough, you know, line throughout is that, you know, when you're spending time with like a poem, you're, and we talked a little bit about this in the career cast, you're really thinking about, you know, what specific word you're choosing and whether it's capturing what you want to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I found myself just kind of getting into that flow state when I would do those types of things, you know, the editing. Um, and I think I can compare it to maybe like a, an artist, a visual artist or a painter, you mm-hmm. know, when they see a sunset that they really love and they're just like, how do I get that pink? You know, how do I, I want to experiment until I can capture that. You know, I feel the same way sort of about emotions and and things that I would see, you know, what would be the right word for that? And how do I capture it? And how do you talk to different audiences? You know, what, what am I trying to communicate with these words and what levels of sort of, um, uh, what levels of meaning are, are kind of hidden. Um, you, you work a lot with that when you're working with creative writing without really talking about Mm -hmm. it in that way. Um, how to layer meaning into, you know, the the fewest possible words. Um, and so I uh, I found an amazing program at UCSB, uh, the College of Creative Studies, um, and they have a creative writing and literature program that is kind of like a graduate program for undergraduates. So mm-hmm. and it's sort of based on like a Stanford model. So it's all pass no pass. Um, and you have, uh, you know, all your classes are like 15 to 20 people. You get to choose, you know, whatever you want from the curriculum and make your own kind of major out of, you know, which, you know, do you want to study? You have to st- study, you know, Shakespeare and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Chaucer and Milton. Those are the requirements, but everything else is kind of up to you. Um, and you have an advisor and you, you, you know, create a, um, a portfolio. Mm-hmm. So you have an advisor and you work on a portfolio that you, um, you know, finish at the end of your your time there. Um, and so that was just incredible. Uh, and it allowed me a lot of freedom to explore on campus as well. Um, so I took, you know, intro to psychology and I kind of by a complete fluke started taking French. Um, I was taking a ballet class for exercise and it still had a midterm involved. And so I was doing flashcards of the French words so I could memorize the moves. And I was sitting in my dorm, um, common room and someone was like oh you're taking French that's so cool and I was like no I'm not but maybe I should it was well, you like you were actually you know like in, in a way, in a way I was, you were exactly so true yeah so true um yeah and so I had taken you know Spanish I grew up in LA and um California and so I had taken Spanish um in high school for three years and I was lucky enough to go to Montessori schools so we had some mm-hmm. um Spanish language uh, instruction when I was younger. So that felt very familiar to me. And I took it because it was a very practical choice. Um, I didn't take it because I was in love with learning languages at all. I just thought, you know, there's lots of moments when I might need to translate for someone. Um, And so it just seemed like the right move. And so I had never really like fallen in love with the language the same way. Um, And so I took that first French class and I was so incredibly overwhelmed, like more than I even was in Mm. math classes, but in a different way, in this kind of fascinated way. Um, I remember my first French class, 
our professor was from Paris and, you know, it was complete immersion style. Right. And mm-hmm. so she just mm-hmm. spoke to us in French for 50 minutes and all of us were just, you know, stuck, like just what looking at each other, looking at her, trying to look mm-hmm. at the textbook. And it was, there was something so um, uh, engaging about, I think all of the different parts of my brain that were engaged and all of my mm-hmm. senses being engaged at the same time. Um, that was just so kind of addicting to me. Um, mm-hmm. I really loved that that focus of having to listen, having to try to parse, having to maybe try to write notes or you know look at at references, um, and then trying to have to formulate how to respond and doing the grammar and all the working memory that you're using. That was just it's another flow state type of thing where mm-hmm. you know the time passes mm-hmm. and you don't even realize the 50 minutes would go so quickly, um, and so without kind of understanding why I I was really drawn to it. Um, So I decided to get a minor in French. Um, And then as I was sort of going through my career, you know, that was a side thing just for fun, Um, or sorry, my career planning, I should say. I was really um, looking to be a screenwriter. I've always loved movies. Um, And, you know, screenwriting to me really distilled, like, (laughs) and different people in creative writing, I'm sure would argue with this, but to me, it felt like it was really distilling what was happening um, because you are not allowed to like use adjectives, you know, you have to, Mm -hmm. of course you can use adjectives, but you want to really leave it up to the other people that are collaborating on the movie with you. You don't want to do everybody's job. You're not doing the director's job. You don't tell them where to, where to walk or what to, you know, look like you don't tell, you don't want to do the set designer's job. You know, you're only giving the absolute bare minimum that you think is required on the page to understand the story and for the story to be, um, you know, enthralling to someone who's, who's trying to read it, which is really, really tough. Um, and it really is about the dialogue. That's what it comes down to is, you know, everything you're packing into this dialogue, all the character development is in the dialogue There's a little bit of action, but, um, so that was another kind of moment of spending a lot of time with like kind of, you know, spoken language in a way. Um, and so as I was prepping for that, I was, you know, doing a lot of workshops and, and speaking with screenwriters, you know, we were in Santa Barbara and so we're only a couple hours away from LA, um, and kind of finding out about what that life looked like. Uh, and it, I, I was still, I, I, I don't remember if I was hesitant yet <laughs> or if that hadn't kind of come up, but I, I felt like I needed to take a break. I, I knew um, I had heard from all of the amazing uh, creative writing professionals that they had brought in to speak to us at the College of Creative Studies that you should 100% take at least a year off before you do an MFA, right? That was the expected mm-hmm. um, track was to do an, a master's of fine arts and creative writing afterwards. Um, but every single person said, oh my gosh, don't do it right away. You know, make sure you decide what you want to do. Creative writing is huge. Writing is huge as a field. And, you know, it's it's not for everybody. It, it's You're signing up for a certain type of life. Um, you'll probably be working another job on the side. Um, I, I was just so, thinking that as yeah. you were talking, I yeah. mean, to, to decide that you're going to go into creative writing and then into screenwriting, which yes. in a lot of ways is even more precarious. Um, hey, yeah. you know, strikes finally over, which is great, but um, mm-hmm. you read so many stories about people who are incredibly talented and creative, but finding work enough to support yourself is a rare thing. Um, in yes. Hollywood or anywhere else, being able to do that as your actual career is like, you know, it it, it is in a way, um, I would say a little bit analogous to 
people who get their PhD in linguistics and then want to get a tenure yes. track job. Like there's only a certain number of slots and you could be the best person in the world, but because there's so much competition and so many things outside of your control, um, you can't count on yes. it. Yes. Are vampire just... movies in or not right now? You know, <laughs> you're going to come in and they're going to say, can you add zombies to this movie? Right, right. You know, that you've been working on for five years. <laughs> And they have five different writers, and one of them happens to have gone to college with the son of the guy who's the director. Well, that's yes. the person who's going to get the job, right? Like, the, yep. just those sorts of things. You have no, no control over them at all. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was really, like, I, I guess I kind of expected my whole um, bachelor's career that I would have a kind of day job. And so maybe that mm -hmm. kind of set me up in a in a good way that I always expected I would probably have something that was like not my absolute passion that I would be doing while I did this on the side. Um, and so that allowed me to kind of take jobs that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, yeah. So, so I uh, was thinking about becoming a screenwriter um, and I, I want to backtrack a little bit because like I said, I've had a very varied uh, <laughs> timeline so I grew up, um, you know, with a single mom, we were very low income. Um, and so I kind of just always had a job. Um, it was always just kind of expected. You know, I got my work permit when I was 14. I started working. Uh, my mom actually owned her own Montessori school at that time, a, a preschool. And so I started working in her preschool. During the summertime, I would like nanny for one of the kids. Um, and then when I got to college, you know, right away, I got a job at the front desk of my dorm. And that was also really crucial um, for connecting in with people as a first-generation college student and just understanding how the system worked. Um, and also, it was my first uh, instruction in, like, inclusive language and things like that. You know, mm -hmm. residential mm -hmm. life was amazing at UCSB about inclusivity and um, being really progressive in those ways and really implementing things. Like, suddenly everybody, you know, who I worked with said, y'all and not you guys, you know, right away. Mm -hmm. And so I was already sort of learning to, to switch into that. And it was expected when you're at the front desk, you are a representative of residential life. And so it's expected mm -hmm. that you used inclusive language. And so it was kind of part of my job requirements. Um, so that was like also kind of interesting because I was learning French and also kind of learning to change my, some, um, you know, uh, closed class words in my, in my everyday life. Um, and then kind of getting different, uh, discourses, you know, in, in different arenas, you know, I was speaking differently when I was at the front desk than when I was, you know, with my screenwriting, you know, folks than when I was with my, you know, I was speaking French, you know, so it was kind of already starting to vary just from a brain perspective, from like a neuroscience perspective. Um, and so after I was uh, at the front desk, I worked as an RA over the summer for like the freshman summer start program. Um, and so I uh, made a lot of networking connections there too. Um, and then that actually led to, uh, I, I, one of my friends who was an RA, she introduced me to someone who told me about a position on campus where you um, helped to run the computer labs. Um, mm -hmm. And so I had just finished working some kind of retail jobs over the holidays. And I was like, oh, you know, exhausted from that. I was working at Cost Plus and I was like on my feet all the time. I said, I need something mm -hmm. where I can, you know, be sitting down and maybe get some homework done. Um, something that I can fit in in between classes. And so this was perfect, even though it was completely outside of my, you know, wheelhouse or interest. I was not interested in tech. I was not tech savvy. Um, and I just thought, you know, it sounds convenient and it sounds like they have a good thing going on there. Um, and so I, I got a position there and I worked there uh, for three years. 
So I was um, managing, by the end, I was managing the student supervisors. So I was the principal student supervisor. Um, And so we had 50 students total. Um, We had like, I think it was like 15 computer labs. And then we also had help desks. So we had student support help desks. So it was students helping students. And so we, um, you know, supported the email migration from the on-campus email to um, Office 365. Uh, We, you know, supported the, like, um, just as identity access services, things like that, you know, their, their kind of ID. Um, and so we also had a lot of uh, like, you know, help desk training that we needed to do with sure. our students. Okay. So how to, how to answer the phone, how to, you know, use, so how to use templates for, you know, replying to emails and, and make sure that you're not giving too much information and what information is private. And when do you want to make sure that you, you know, if you're talking to uh, a parent on the phone, you need to verify that, you know, they really are a parent. And what information can you give out to a parent? Because a student is, you know, 18 years old. And can you even verify that they're a student there? No. You know, there's all this kind of like detail happening that um, I, it was actually really interesting to try to um, dissect and create uh, guides for. And so that was kind of one of my first experiences, first of all, managing people, but also like creating um, guides and mm-hmm. uh, like heuristics, um, which is very, very relevant for, you know, annotation guidelines, all that kind of stuff when you get into linguistics. Um, So yeah, after I was uh, working in, or sorry, while I was on campus still, I'm still jumping back a little bit. um, I was also uh, a camp counselor um, for the on-campus, it was called the Family Vacation Center. So I was a camp counselor working with like zero to two-year-olds while their parents were having fun and, and their siblings. Um, and so I did that over the summer, and then that really prepared me uh, to be able to go abroad and do it in France the next summer. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like I said, I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do when I was done with my bachelor's, and I was a little bit unsure how to break in or how long it was going to take. And I thought, you know, I want to take a little time off and kind of um, get better at French. And and maybe, you know, everyone says that this immersion thing is really important, right? Um, and so... I went to the EAP, uh, the Education Abroad Program office, and I went to the, you know, the info sessions and I found out about Paris and it looked so fun and I got really excited. And then I saw the price tag and I was like, that's definitely not happening for me. <laughs> um, and so I said, okay, how do I do this without paying that money? There must be a way, right? And so I um, started researching and I found this program. It was called American Village and it was an immersion camp for kids in France. Um, and so I applied to that instead and I got it and I took out a loan for a thousand dollars and <laughs> bought my plane ticket, um, and, you know, got my passport. Uh, you know, my mom has only left the country once on her honeymoon and my family doesn't, you know, I hadn't really traveled. So I was, all of it was new to me, um, and, and scary and exhilarating. Um, but it, something called to me about it. I don't know. You know, I, I really, I can't tell you the moment when I, you know, decided to do this, there was just that kind of lit up feeling that you get. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. something really, really important to pay attention to. And I would say that that's like, maybe one of my main pieces of advice. Um, I've done a meditation recently where, you know, she was saying, okay, where in your body do you feel a yes? And then sit Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. and feel that and remember what that feels like. And then where in your body do you feel a no? Um, and, you know, pay attention to those when you're feeling them. And I have moments, you know, where I I remember just feeling that lit up feeling that just, oh, yes, 
something, something's calling to me. Um, and those are so important and, and so precious. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I went to, um, France for the summer. It was incredible. I was there for two months. Um, I came back and said, yes, I definitely want to do this when I graduate. Um, and so I started working towards that. I applied to the French ministry of education and I got, um, a position in their teaching assistant assistantship program. And so I was working in the, um, elementary schools of, uh, Vichy. I was in Vichy in France. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was great. Um, it gave me kind of a a moment to breathe after my bachelor's, um, because it was only about 12 hours a week. And so I could actually relax for a moment and, and learn French and, and just Mm -hmm. walk around and, you know, watch people and, and all of that. And so it was a really great decompression period. Listening to you talk about all the different things that you did, and I 100% agree with you that being in retail positions or public-facing positions are super important for linguistics. You just learn so yeah. much about how to communicate with people. It, it sounds to me like all of the work that you did, all of the jobs and the positions you had, you were doing linguistics all along. Right. You know, <laughs> it, every single thing that you've just said is all linguistics in one way or another, even though that wasn't yeah. what you were planning on doing. It, it totally was. And what a great preparation for a career doing what you do now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, that tech stuff that I never expected to be relevant. I definitely was not expecting to work in tech. Um, I, I just thought it would be a side thing. And it ended up being so, so necessary. All of the things that weren't necessarily as interesting to me in the moment, but I had to learn for work, ended up being like kind of this, this, this bedrock that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, about, you know, just how the, you know, software as a service life cycles work, how, you know, what is the difference between the enterprise and, you know, a free version of something, all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. I got like mm-hmm. a lot of in-depth um, practice with because, uh, so after I finished my um, time in France, it was about six months. I came back. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was living with my mom. I was applying for nannying positions in LA um, and I kept in touch with my old boss from when I was a student supervisor. And he said, I had a really great relationship with him. Um, and he said, Hey, you know, I have been trying to convince them to hire, you know, a secondary person for me because I have way too much work. Why don't you come up and do a contract mm-hmm. and then we'll see if we can get, turn it into a real position. Um, and so I did that. So it was networking once again, you know, Mm-hmm. And I, they made a position for me and I was there for two years and we had an amazing time together, you know, running the computer lab, doing basically everything I had been doing as a student supervisor, but with a full-time, um, you know, as a full-time employee. And so uh, I was doing things like, you know, we brought Box to campus, which is like, you know, a Google Drive, like a cloud storage. So we like mm-hmm. rolled that out. And so... Um, it was completely voluntary, but we still, you know, we were managed to get like, I think 25,000 seats filled within the first like year and a half. So we were working on like marketing campaigns. Um, you know, we were working with uh, student staff and faculty as distinct user groups and, and trying to figure out what their mm-hmm. needs were, how they used products, how to market to them, how to explain, you know, to professors how, you know, why having, you know, <laughs> unlimited storage in Google, I'm sorry, in um, Box was better than their, you know, server that was sitting in front of them Mm -hmm, kind of a mm -hmm. thing, what a terabyte was, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And so I learned a lot about kind of speaking, like you were saying, speaking to different groups, um, sort of empathizing with people quickly and and figuring out what 
is relevant to um, share with them and, and adjusting. Um, and I'll, I'll pop back for a second and say the elevator pitch thing is something that I, I've heard you talk about in um, other podcasts. And it was something that I learned with screenwriting, actually. And I think that that is also was really helpful for me to learn how to sell something. Um, because with screenwriting, you're not selling yourself. So it's not quite the same as a job interview. You're selling your screen your screenplay. Um, and you're supposed to have two or three, you know, that you have working on. And you're supposed to be, you know, if you're not excited about it, why should they be excited about it, right? Mm-hmm, so it's supposed to be, right. oh my gosh, you've never heard. Okay, so it's just like, you know, right. Mad Men, but it's this, you know? But, and so yeah, you right, have right. to be able to do that. And you have to give them things that they're familiar with. You have to give them some touch points, even if, you know, you hate that you have to reference something because your movie's much better and it's the artistic version, you still have to reference it. Um, and so figuring out how to kind of package things and, oh, they don't like that one. No, I hate zombies. Next. Okay, well, I have another one that is, you know, this. And so that training and, and, and having some of those workshops with screenwriters where they would help you to develop those pitches um, was really great for then selling myself or selling, you know, uh, a, a technology solution or whatever thing. Um, mm-hmm. So we got, so I got a lot of great uh, kind of tech background there. I was working um, on also some certifications there, you know, like customer success architect from DocuSign, these kind of like weird things where you would go and do these trainings, you know, and they would explain how to um, help with adoption of their product at your, um, you know, enterprise client. And so that stuff was sort of like, okay, sure, this is kind of interesting, but it's not, you know, it doesn't seem like absolutely my my calling. Um, and so while I was working there uh, for two years, I was kind of exploring all of what I really wanted to do. Um, and so I, I think this is a really great uh, piece of advice as well is to have, if you're able to, when you're starting out, have a position that does allow you a little bit of financial security and isn't so draining, um, then you can kind of explore in your free time. And mm-hmm. I think that flexibility was really nice. Um, and so while I was working there, I was first starting to think, okay, I really want to go back abroad. I, I loved that experience. It was only six months. I would love to spend at least a year someplace before I kind of put down roots and, and decide where I want to be for my life. Um, and so I was starting to look into teaching in like Thailand or Madrid. Um, I got my teaching certificate certificate from online from University of Toronto during that time. Um, and I started teaching ES, or EFL, sorry, English as a foreign language, not second, um, to students abroad uh, through some of these like at that time brand new um, English teaching services like VIP Kid um, is kind of a famous one. And so I would I would wake up at you know four four thirty and go into the go into my office and I would work from five to eight teaching and then I would start and work eight to five um, and then I would wow. go home and crash. Um, yeah. And so I started wow. to get some experience. I started to um, I reached out to my uh, someone that I consider a mentor, Jan Ferdison, who was the teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, professor that I had taken that class with before I went to France. Um, so since I was on campus as well, I was able to continue to connect with people. So I, I reached out to her and, and she was really great um, in, in providing me a little bit of kind of career counseling. And so uh, she said, oh, there's also a, uh, you know, a, a conference coming up. It's just a local like California, you know, TESOL conference. So I presented there on like teaching online and virtual teaching um, I came and presented to her class a couple of times on my experiences in France, as well as teaching online, same thing. Um, and then I also started to just, I was just spending tons of time on things like Upwork 
and, um, you know, Indeed. And uh, I didn't know about Linguist List at that point. I wish I had. Um, but I was looking for language learning tech things in general. Um, and mm-hmm. so I also found a couple of little startups that I worked with. I worked with one that was um, creating like a virtual, it's kind of like Second Life, but it, it was like much cuter. Um, and so you could go in and the idea was that you would be in a famous place, like you would be, you know, at, uh, what is it, Pier 39 at San Francisco in San Francisco. And you'd wander around and you would get to have experiences with locals. So you could go and, and, you know, there would be tutors who were hanging out in the environment. So you could go in and practice, you know, ordering food at the, you know, at Boudin, you could order a bread bowl, you could go and like, you know, talk about sea lions and there would just be people hanging out there. So it seemed like such a great idea because it was like, oh, it removed that fear that people have of being kind of on camera and speaking. Um, and they can just kind of, you know, relax behind their avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started to notice some of the things with both these types of uh, little projects that I was doing and teaching online. I just started to have these questions, right? <laughs> um, I just kept wondering, but why? And so I just kept feeling a little bit um, unsatisfied with what I was getting from like my uh, English certificate, the teaching English certificate, in that it was explaining, you know, what was the best practice in a classroom, you know, how do you navigate questions like um, questions of like prescriptivism, right? But they weren't using the word prescriptivism. Mm-hmm. They were saying things like, um, you know, if someone says, oh, but I, I've been, you know, what am I going to do? I have to know I'm in business English class and I have to know, you know, have this client and, you know, they're speaking British English and you've been teaching me American English. And now, you know, everything's going to be wrong. It's going to be mixed up. What am I going to do? And, you know, you have to be able to say, hey, you're going to be able to understand so many more people because you're getting practice with me and with people who speak British English or Indian English or whatever it is. Um, And yes, there is a right or wrong answer in this class. Like you will get scored wrong. (laughs) We have Mm -hmm. to stick to something, but you can have those conversations. Um, And so some of those things just started to, started to, to, you know, needle at me (laughs) in, in my brain. You know, I started to wonder why, why is it not working when people are behind these avatars? Like, why is it there's some why are there so many communication breakdowns? Because I would go in and and um, you know uh, observe the conversations and I would try to create the material for the um, for the tutors to like have games or have some sort of activities going on. And so I was observing that and and now you know it makes sense because so much of of language is not just what we say, you know, there's so much mm-hmm. happening and and especially when you're first learning and you're learning about turn taking and how to express, you know, whether you're just thinking about what you're going to say or whether you really need help and you're stuck, um, you know, those noises that we make so naturally that, mm, mm-hmm, or, hmm, you know, all of those are not, they're, they're not, you know, hum- they're not shared by all humans. It's, it's second nature in a way. It's something you learn. Um, and so I started to wonder about some of these questions. And while I was speaking with my advisor, um, sorry, not my advisor, but my mentor, um, Jan, you know, she started to say, well, maybe you really need to look into linguistics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so this is where I finally said, well, okay, what's linguistics? Let's look back at, <laughs> look back at this thing. Um, so yeah, so I started to um, research it on my own a bit. I, I kind of switched gears and stopped looking for teaching English positions and started to think maybe I need to get my master's. Maybe I'm just not going to be satisfied. Um, if, unless I, I get to ask these like really, you know, kind of deep at the, at the time, you know, cognitive science type questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started, but I wasn't sure, you know, what type of program I would want. I knew I wanted to do it abroad. 
um, well, I, I thought I wanted to do it abroad. Um, and so I started auditing classes. So I would go at lunch and I would go after work and mm-hmm. sit in on classes. I sat in on a psycholinguistics and a computational linguistics class, um, which is also a great way to network with professors because you're like a random, you know, old person who's dressed fancy in the back <laughs> um, <laughs> with all the students and they definitely remember you. Um, and so uh, I did that. And then I also, I realized, you know, I was looking at the applications and I didn't have all of the stuff that they needed. I didn't have a bachelor's in linguistics. I didn't have mm-hmm. any research experience. You know, I had a lot of screenplays, um, <laughs> but that wasn't going to help. And so I said, I need to start building some of this stuff up. And luckily I'm on campus, so I can. Um, and so I also found a research assistant um, uh, group, like they were working on a group uh, with a professor in linguistics department on this project um, where they were trying to create a software that would allow uh, people to like to gamify um, sort of annotation in a way, gamify like tagging of um, this specific, you know, syntactic thing he was looking at. Um, and so I worked a little bit on that. Um, and then I was able to kind of narrow down what type of program I want, might want. And I went to the office hours of the professor that I was auditing and talked with him and showed him the programs that I was looking at. Um, and kind of tried to get his advice, like, does this seem legit? You know, I, I also didn't know how to gauge something. Like, does it seem like a legit program? Like, you know, they're abroad. I don't know. Um, and so I was thinking through that. And then at the same time, I was also considering, I'll mention this because it's important. I was also considering uh, doing it at UCSB. Um, and so I heard mm-hmm. this mentioned on one of the other podcasts. So if you're a full-time staff member um, in the UC system, you can get a, a seriously discounted. I want to say it's like 75% off or something mm-hmm. um, tuition if you continue to be a full-time staff member. <laughs> and so I was looking at this program and trying to figure out if it was feasible. Um, they offered it, but no one had ever heard of anyone doing it. Like everyone I asked mm-hmm. said, oh, that sounds mm-hmm. neat, which scared me. Before you go on, I just want to um, loop back to two things real quick. One is to say... Um, you mentioned auditing, and I, I think that's something that I haven't really talked with people about before because I don't think I've talked to anyone who's done it. But for people who are in a university and you are trying to decide if you want to take a course because you're wondering if it's going to be relevant for your career or interesting, like, just go, right? Just go and yeah. sit in the back of the class. You don't even have to formally exactly. audit it. but professors don't care if you just show up, if you want to find out about it. I also think it's it's a good way to gauge whether you might want to take a class in um, things that are outside of your area. Like if you want to take a business class or if you want to take a, um, you know, a management class or a finance class or something like that, you don't always have to take a class and have it count and get the grades for it, you can always just go and drop in and, and see. I think most professors are real happy to have people come and, you know, do a little sampling to see if they want to actually do it. Um, exactly. So I wanted to say that uh, thanks for the shout out to Upwork. I named it. So I love that name. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Yeah. Upwork actually I'll, I'll return later, but it got me my job uh, with Duolingo later. So. Oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, yeah. great. All right. Yeah. So continue. Um, <laughs> So while I was uh, kind of thinking about all that stuff, I also um, got a new job on campus. So I was the help desk manager, like operations coordinator for two years. And then I got a new position as a communications analyst in the office of the, of the um, chief information officer. Um, and so I was kind of hesitant about taking it um, because I wanted to go back abroad. I knew I wanted to go do this program. At that point, I had pretty much decided. I had looked into, you know, I'd talked about doing, talked to some professors, you know, in the education department. I thought about doing maybe a, a doctorate in education. 
I had looked at the linguistics department, but I didn't feel that I would get in because like I said, I didn't have any experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a linguistics undergrad. And so I thought my, my chances were probably slim there. Um, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I wanted to do teaching, um, of languages, although that was really interesting to me. I, I wanted to kind of not, um, put myself in too small of a box. I wanted to do something a little bit broader in case I decided that there was something about, you know, multilingualism that somewhere else that I wanted to pursue. Um, and so that's why I kind of was leaning towards linguistics and why I was leaning towards a master's over a PhD. Um, I was at that point, you know, I was already whatever, 25, something like that. Um, I, you know, had been, I had done a lot of things, but I hadn't really, I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was ready to commit to such a long time period in one place mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something that I, I had done a lot of things, but I wasn't sure that I had exactly narrowed down what I wanted for so long yet, if that makes sense. I had so many experiences. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of different avenues I kind of wanted to go. So I wasn't sure. Um, and then there was the kind of financial aspect of it that I, I knew that I wasn't going to be making any money. And if I was going to be doing that for you know two years, that's a lot different than four to eight. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. so especially if I was going to work on campus, I was like, then it's really going to take eight years. So all of this kind of led me to um, more heavily uh, favor going abroad. Um, so the, the programs abroad that I was looking at were incredibly uh, affordable. So, you know, my master's in Italy, the entire thing cost $5,000 um, wow. to the school. The whole thing, everything else Amazing. around it costs a lot more yeah. <laughs> and maybe took, you know, a year off my life, but um, the, dealing with the bureaucracy, et cetera, I don't recommend that part. Um, but it was, it was, you know, a, a matter of, okay, am I going to kind of pay as I go and pay a little bit? Or do I have a big chunk up front and I know that I can be comfortable? And I did not have that big chunk. I had saved mm-hmm. for those three years enough to, um, you know, make the, make the move abroad. Um, but that was it. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so that was how I decided to go abroad. Um, and then I'll, I'll jump back and say the communications analyst position. I went back and forth about taking it. I'm so glad I did in the end. Um, I ended up being there for a year while I was, you know, figuring out what masters I wanted to do. And I learned so much in that year. And these positions are amazing for linguists. Um, so, I was essentially in charge of any communication that the office did. And so it was kind of the, you know, the, the main tech office of the campus. And so I was doing everything from like ghostwriting, you know, memos from the CIO or from like, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. the, you know, provost, vice provost or something um, about technology things to working directly with the project management office and um, program management office and all of their, you know, new initiatives that they're bringing on campus um, they were doing a huge payroll uh, system change from like their one from the 80s. It was a black screen with green writing and no mouse. Um, that was like the payroll system that they were using in the UC system at that time. So they were changing over to an Oracle um, based one. And so that was huge. You know, there was people who had been there their whole careers and suddenly everything they did was changing. Um, and so it was a lot of change management. I worked with organizational psychologists. Um, and learned a lot from them about how, about messaging. Um, you know, we would do these like road shows. We would kind of think about how to bring in humor, how to, how to soften people's, um, you know, their first kind of reception because people would come up, come in very defensive and very up in arms. Um, we had, you know, there was a lot of people who actually like 
decided to retire early because they were just like, I'm not going to do this. So it was really, it was really big. And I learned so, so much there. Um, And I think it's a really fun job for communications. uh, I'm sorry, for linguistics um, majors. Um, I also got to do like the website. So I did all the writing for the websites. I got to like help do a website consolidation. We got rid of like, we had like 10 different IT websites and we moved them all into one. Um, So I got to do like wireframing for the website, just so many little things. Um, Yeah. So that was, that was really great. And then the other important thing I would say I learned there is um, I learned a lot about academia from a staff perspective. Mm -hmm. So I would say that like my experience with academia is actually not very often from a student perspective at all, or especially from a graduate student perspective, Mm -hmm. um, because I don't have a PhD. So I saw it as a staff member. And so that meant that there was this hierarchy on campus, you know, faculty were first and then students and then staff were at the bottom always. Um, And there was a lot of politics. There was a lot of, you know, just weird kind of things that come out of the system itself of, of tenure and having people there and, 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 you know, not being able to treat everyone equally. Um, there was just a lot of things that I didn't love about academia that I saw there. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially I'll say that I, I felt there was this sort of, um, it's not imposter syndrome because I didn't, I didn't feel like I couldn't do the work, but I felt like I wasn't in the right bucket. Um, and I would mm-hmm. say I felt the same way when I was in my creative writing program. I, I absolutely loved it. I loved all the classes. I loved engaging with it, but I didn't feel like a writer and that was me. And that was the only thing I could ever do. And if I didn't write every day, I would go crazy. You know, I didn't feel that same way. And, and some of the other folks in my program, because it was so specialized were that, you know, they were writers, they were poets. And like, that was what they were going to do with their life. And they didn't have a choice. Um, And I'd never quite felt that way. Um, And so I felt the same way as a staff member. It was like these, there were these amazing, amazing, passionate folks who were who were there to support research. And, you know, they were so passionate about figuring out how to make tech work for these researchers. How do we store their data quickly? How do we make, you know, their experiments run better? Um, And I found myself feeling really envious of the researchers. I found myself, you know, seeing the grad students, because I don't know if you, if you have the same feeling, but when you're on campus, if you spend enough time on campus, you can spot grad students really well, right? (laughs) They look different than, than bachelors. So I would see them walking around and I just, I started having these feelings of like jealousy and envious, like, oh, well, yeah, they just get to walk around and think about their research all the time. And oh, they just get to, you know, they don't even have to worry about whatever, whatever. They just get to like, you know, go deep into whatever interesting thing they're thinking about. And I was like, wait a minute, why am I feeling this way? <laughs> Maybe I should be a grad student. Um, and so those feelings were also kind of uh, alchemizing in me a little bit um, during that time period. So uh, after I left UCSB, um, I went to Italy, so I did my pro my uh, master's in Siena, mm-hmm. and it was a uh, linguistics and cognitive studies program, and so it had a big focus on, uh, and it's cognitive studies from like a philosophical kind of you know continental um, philosophy uh, perspective, and so we took like philosophy of mind and theory of meaning, and you know we're reading. Um, you know, about how do the components of, you know, we took logic as well. We had to take, you know, formal logic. Uh, how do the components of a sentence, um, how can they be, you know, broken down? And what are the inputs and outputs? You know, I took uh, computational, um, I'm sorry, compositional semantics. So what are the kind of, you know, small pieces that 
come together to create meaning and how can we represent that using you know pre-calculus and and writing it down and and what are the inputs and outputs and thinking of a verb as you know something that takes an input of a noun and outputs a certain meaning and all of this was was really fascinating but so so challenging I'll say like mm-hmm. my first day when I showed up and and I had you know my first class was logic class I was like oh my <laughs> god what have I done oh no, I, I moved all the way to Italy and I signed up for a math program. What happened? Like, mm-hmm. how did I not know this? I thought I was so good. I thought I did so much, you know, research. I audited classes. Um, so I definitely had a kind of crisis moment, but I felt um, heartened by the fact that my other classmates felt the same way. Everybody mm-hmm. was like, whoa, 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 what is this? Um, you know, there's very few people who had really done, like most people also had not done a linguistics um, undergrad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so people were coming in from, you know, it's a really international program as well. Um, and so my first, I'll definitely say that my first like six months were really, really rocky. Um, it was really tough to deal with the bureaucracy and just, and moving and and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was, that's definitely something that I, I can't emphasize enough is should be part of somebody's um, thought process uh, if they're going to be, if they're considering going abroad. It's really emotionally taxing. You'll learn a lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a lot out of you, um, which yeah. can affect, you know, the amount you can, you can put towards your studies in a way. Um, yeah, and I was also, totally. you know, but that was kind of part of my plan. I, I wanted to go and, and learn Italian and stuff like that too, but it's an added barrier and an added stressor, right? Because I spoke no Italian when I showed up. I only spoke, you know, French and Spanish. And so I could figure things out, but it took a while. Um, And so maybe I would have, like, if I had time, I would have taken some Italian classes before I went looking back, but I was pretty busy, so. I I was going to say, I'm I'm sure that your experience also, um, being a woman, right, is going to be different. being yes. someone who doesn't come from generational wealth is also different, yes. right? Like you just have a different set of resources than other people. Um, exactly. But, you know, I, I might put those, you know, very generally on the negative side, maybe not, but mm-hmm. on the positive side, you know, you've had all this experience um, with different types of people and you've already been abroad and, you know, yeah. you have sort of a, a much wider range of real world experience, I am sure, than some of the other folks that were there with you who maybe if they yes. did come from rich parents, you know, they hadn't had any of those things. And so they, they wouldn't yes. know quite what to do. Uh, I am real curious to know at this point, so you're getting your master's degree. At any point in this, did you ever consider having a job in academia? You know, I, I know you just said all that stuff about seeing it from this different yeah. side, which I find completely fascinating. And I, I totally agree with you. But, you know, did you ever think, hmm, I could be a professor? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always wanted, not always, I'll take that back, not always, but I loved my professors and I mm-hmm. looked up to them so much. Um, and I definitely, I loved teaching. I, I actually love, you know, doing curriculum design. That was what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and so I definitely wanted to do that. And once I mm-hmm. finished my uh, master's, I did. I applied to um, Berkeley and Stanford. Um, I yeah, I definitely considered um, going back to get a PhD um, and become a professor. And I mm-hmm. I think I, I go back and forth in my mind a lot. Even still, I think about it. Um, it's still attractive to me. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, I have these other things in my life that are my priorities, and I think you know, doing the linguistics career, uh, launch program was amazing, mm-hmm. you know, shout out to that. That was so, so helpful for me to kind of crystallize what values, 
um, were important to me in a company and also what kind of just practical limitations I had in my life. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just very, I'm very, very fortunate to be from California. um, And I'm very uh, spoiled when it comes to weather. (laughs) Um, And so that Mm -hmm. like cuts down a lot of it. I wanted to be near, you know, my little sister and my mom who are in LA. Mm -hmm. So I I knew I didn't Mm want to go you know, too far. Um, I wanted to live in a big city. I'd never lived in a big city before. Um, and so I knew I wanted to live in San Francisco, essentially, when I finished my master's. And so I applied to Berkeley and Stanford, and that was it. And I didn't get in. And I was like, okay. Um, but I wasn't willing to, at that point in my life, I was not willing to up and move again, or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of be subject to the, the whims of which institution I was at, and have that be the city that I had to live in. Um, and so I you know, kind of made a, a choice there that I, and, and also learning a lot about really thinking critically and learning a lot about the, the structures of academia and, you know, the potential toxic, the potential for toxic relationships just because mm-hmm, of the way mm-hmm. it's kind of structured. Um, I, I love uh, Amanda Montel. Um, she's a linguist. I love her books, mm-hmm. um, Word Slut and Cultish. And so the yeah. Cultish one, she has a, um, a podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, and she has one on academia. And, um, you know, thinking about things like that really changed my perspective because she says, you know, okay, what are the things that make a cult? You know, it's, it's about these kind of power dynamics and, and you know, wearing robes and chanting, mm-hmm. <laughs> which academia does. Um, but aside from literally, that, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, literally, exactly. Like that one is kind of an obvious one. But um, yeah, it kind of just made me think, think about where I wanted to be. And I didn't want to be stuck in a situation that I wasn't happy with basically Mm -hmm, sure Um, I wanted to have that flexibility so um yeah so while I was in grad school I while I was doing my master's I uh continued to look for work so I'll I'll tell you a story of persistence um when I was still applying for grad school living in Santa Barbara and I was you know researching all of these tech language learning startups I found, um, you know, I, I reached out to tons of them, right? I just, I'm somebody who's like very not afraid to cold mm-hmm. email or cold LinkedIn message. Like I've sent so many messages to so many people. Um, I always try, it always comes from a genuine place. And I always try to, you know, show that in some way. I always try to show that I'm genuinely interested. I try to mention mm-hmm. something to show that I really have looked at what they've done, you know, read one of their papers, something like that. Um, or, you know, read a lot about the company and so there was a company called Lingvist, or there, there still is. They're a competitor to, I guess, Babbel, really, because they're in Europe, but Duolingo as well. Um, and they're based in Estonia, but they have a head, they also have a headquarters in London. And so I had reached out to them uh, and just said, like, hey, you know, I think your product's so cool. I'm, you know, looking for opportunities and everything like that. Um, and and I'd just been kind of bugging them, them among other companies. I just kept bugging people. Um, and then I said, Hey, I, I had a friend who is, um, who lives in London. And so I was going to be visiting her once I got to Italy and I was like, Hey, I'm going to be in London. Can I please come in and, and meet mm-hmm. you guys and visit the office? Mm-hmm. And they were like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so I just came in and I, I spoke with someone and I, I explained, you know, kind of what I could bring, you know, that I was a writer and I, I tried to tell some fun kind of things about, you know, my experience working with different audiences as a communications analyst and all this kind of stuff. And she was like, all right, well, you know, we'll let you know if we can, if something comes up. And then she left the company and I was so disappointed. Uh, Um, mm -hmm. 
And then I, so I started my master's and I was like, okay, I'm going to have to figure, you know, I was interviewing for like teaching English jobs in Siena, but it's a tiny city and there's like no jobs and I don't want to give them to, you know, non-Italians. It's like really tough. You're not supposed to work much and stuff. Um, and so I was having a hard time with that. And then out of the blue, I get an email from someone at Lingvist, uh, and it was a new person who had filled her job. And she was, you know, coming in and she was the SEO, the search engine optimization you know, person. She was coming in and she was like, hey, I really want to, you know, create a bunch of content that would help us, you know, drive, drive people to our product. Um, and so would you be interested? And I was like, absolutely. And so I created another little job for myself, um, which wow. was content creator. So I was writing grammar guides for different languages. So I got to like, kind of dive into and work with uh, like, you know, German linguists and native speakers on, you know, declension and like all of these new things and, and writing grammar guides for Spanish and French. Um, and also I, at the same time, was always sort of pushing to get involved with the company in some way, pushing to do articles on things that were more product related. So I would say, you know, like, hey, can I talk with, you know, the person who does the machine learning? Can I talk with the person who does the, who's designed the spaced repetition algorithm that you guys use? You know, can I help explain it in a blog? Um, and so trying to like network and, and get my, always trying to get my foot in with the product folks, um, because that was kind of what I thought I wanted to do, which was like, mm -hmm. you know, creating the, the language learning, um, you know, designing the tech. Uh, and so that was amazing. And they, they were so great. And they, you know, actually even brought me to their, they had like a, a summer, um, you know, offsite thing in the woods in Estonia that I got to go meet everybody um, and, you know, network even more. I, one of our, uh, one of the board members was like the original founder of Skype. And so I got to like mm. hang out in a sauna with him. Um, it was so random, uh, but really fun. And actually funny enough, right before I, I finished with Lingvist, my professor who had taught computational linguistics and psycholinguistics at UCSB, uh, Fermin uh, Moscato del Prado. He <laughs> joined, he left UCSB and joined as the um, kind of like lead research scientist at Levis. And so I was like, hey, wow. <laughs> so that was really funny. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so then I finished up there. Um, while I was doing that, I also worked on another small project, which was like, it's called Play to Speak. And it was essentially conversational design, although there wasn't really a name for that yet, or I didn't know that name. Um, we were using, it was just me and the founder, and he was trying to prototype something where he would use uh, IBM's Watson to mm -hmm. do conversation, to, you know, have conversations with English learners. And so, you know, we had a whole storyline that I came up with, of this whole narrative, a video game structure of, you know, that there was all this lore, and we had to, they had to do certain things, and they had to pick up certain things, and and thinking about, you know, writing the the dialogue flows which i now know what that's called but at the time you know i was just calling it you know conversation flow chart um and you know if they say yes or no you know what do you do and if it doesn't understand how does it how do you have it respond most of the time it's not going to understand and starting to think about those questions of like what can we expect the system to do well and how can we um kind of deal with its flaws in a way that is uh that flows nicely for the user um, and so I was, you know, talking with the founder and saying, these users are probably not going to be picked up well by the system. You know, they're, they're second language speakers. And so I had to really zero in with him. You know, who are you targeting? Are you targeting mm -hmm, beginners? Mm -hmm. Because they're going to have a hard time with this. Let's think about, you know, advanced and what age group, because that changes, you know, he's like, oh, I want it to be for kids and adults. And I'm like, that doesn't work. 
you know, <laughs> they learn differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to design it. And also the narrative needs to be completely different. And the, you know, the, the uh, sentence structure and just everything, the complexity. Um, and so I learned a lot there too, kind of working on that. And in the end, I think it was just, it was going to be really tough to, to pull off. And, and I think um, AI wasn't there yet. Uh, the conversation, you know, ended up just getting stuck a lot, basically. Um, now it would be a totally different story. And so after I finished uh, my coursework, I was working on my thesis for about a year. And while I was doing that, I um, got a job through Upwork uh, via um, Linguist List, actually. One of my professors, because he knew that I was like so passionate about this because I just, you know, I talked to everybody about this stuff. And so he knew I was really into it. And he said, hey, there's a job on Linguist List for Duolingo that looks like you might like it. Um, and so I found out about Linguist List, which is amazing. Um, and so that was really cool. It was basically like a proctor, but it was kind. It was technically doing QA for an AI system. So mm-hmm. it was a Duolingo English test, and it was um, absolutely exploding at that moment because it was during the lockdown, during COVID. And so suddenly everybody who needed to, you know, take their English test so they could go to school next year needed to do it online, and that wasn't set up anywhere. Um, and so it was. It was a really interesting moment where they were scaling like crazy, uh, and their AI system was incredible. I was really impressed. You know, it was, it was really doing well on being able to identify, um, you know, these, these speakers uh, level. And so we were checking to make sure that there weren't any kind of like biases coming in, you know, maybe it doesn't understand one, uh, you know, languages or one first language as well, you know, as another. Um, And so one accent uh, as well as a different one. And so that was also kind of prompting my mind to think about how do these systems interact with folks and, um, you know, also questions of fairness as well, because people were getting, mm-hmm. you know, these these uh, very important certificates that were going to, you know, make or break whether they could get into, you know, a, a school abroad or something like that. And then there was also the other side of it, you know, folks trying to to cheat and stuff like that was really interesting mm-hmm. to try to um, work on. Um, so that I did that until I finished my master's, I'm sorry, my thesis. And then I did the linguistics career launch, which was amazing. Um, and then that really helped me figure out how to set it. I had my LinkedIn already, but really helped me figure out how to set it up mm-hmm. um, for recruiters to find me. And then I had a recruiter reach out to me uh, about a technical writing job at Microsoft. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. I guess uh-huh. I, I've done technical writing. Sounds good. Um, but it wasn't technical writing at all. <laughs> it was analytical linguist job, um, but they just didn't know what that was. Uh, and so that was kind of the start of my like responsible AI um, career. And so I, I got to work with uh, folks at Microsoft Research and uh, Microsoft AI, and we were working on a way to measure um, the fairness risks of a particular system. And so um, measurement is very important so that you can mitigate, right? And you know what you're making progress on. And I, I really learned um, a lot about how to categorize harm and how to think about um, positionality as well when you're the one categorizing harm and and you're saying what's harmful for another group and when that needs to happen because you just need to make a decision and when it's important to you know bring folks in um, mm-hmm. so starting to think about some of those things uh, and and just yeah thinking about what are the big buckets right so they have like allocational harm you know a system that is going to like allocate something to someone or, or not. Um, you know, so maybe something with like credit scores, uh, you know, versus like, um, you know, erasure as a harm. And, you know, how does, you know, even just celebrating Thanksgiving, is that erasure already? You know, is that telling the story of what really happened? No. 
Um, and where is it kind of still culturally appropriate to do that? And where is it not? Where do people know, you know, I, I shouldn't cross this line? And you have to make a business decision about that, about, you know, how is language being used right now? How are these topics being discussed right now? Are we, do we feel confident enough to say that, you know, we can remove queer from a block list? Do we feel like it's been mm -hmm. reclaimed? Does everyone agree? Okay, how many people? Okay, when do we say, you know, this is majority rules at a certain point and this community, you know, is okay with this or not? Um, and so all of those questions just absolutely, you know, blew open my, my, <laughs> my world where I was suddenly seeing everything in my life um, mm -hmm. so much differently. And I just really understood, I started to understand privilege. You know, I re started reading things. I read Cast, an amaz amazing book everyone should read in America, um, and just started to really find this urgency in my work that I felt like language learning was so important, but the, um, because, you know, we live in a world with many languages and people need to learn them. They need job skills, et cetera. That was all very motivating and very important to me and also felt urgent. But some of this other stuff, like the reach that I could have, the impact that I could have on, you know, one AI system that touches so many people's lives mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and the way that they're, it's with growing so quickly and just, you know, bringing along all of this all of this gunk, all of these, you know, all the systematic oppression that we have, it was just recreating it in the new systems. And so it felt so urgent to me. And, and it really lit me up in a way that I had never felt before, where I, I felt like my kind of political values suddenly needed to be part of what I was doing. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I could keep them separate anymore. Um, and so mm -hmm. I took this new job, I, I worked at Microsoft for about uh, nine months, I was there, and there were three-month contracts, which is always hard to do because you're worried, you know, <laughs> a month and a half in, you have to start job searching again, which is very distracting. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But I was able to get this six-month chunk where we worked on, you know, creating these data sets and everything, and then they asked me to come back for three months and help clean up the data sets and actually hire new linguists to look over them. And so that was my first time um, uh, you know, managing linguists, <laughs> which was also really, really scary. Suddenly, you know, I was managing PhDs and I was like, what, <laughs> how did this happen? Um, but it was just because I had just done the project. I knew what was going on with the data. I knew what needed to be fixed. And so we created this whole system on how to kind of, um, uh, measure the issues with our own, our own data that we had created and, and make sure that the data sets that these individual linguists had created had things in common and that they were sort of, um, if they didn't, we had that marked down, you know, does this one go really deep? Does it have every single name of the angels on the, on this list, you know, because it's the religion um, data set. Do we need every name, name of every angel? I don't know. You know, do we have that same depth in the race set? Probably not. You know, we don't have every single uh, abolitionist listed, you know, is that necessary? So all of those kinds of things that clean up um, was really, really fun. And so I did that for three months and then um, they did ask me to come back for another contract. But at that point I had gotten offered a position uh, at TikTok. So I had a recruiter who just reached out to me on LinkedIn once again and um, offered this amazing position of a policy analyst for text features. And so um, myself and the other text feature policy analyst were both linguists. Um, so that was really nice to have someone to kind of chat with about things. But other than that, they didn't really know much about linguistics at, um, at TikTok, I would say. Um, they, but it was very relevant to these positions because we were in charge of uh, features which use text. So I was in charge of the interactional features and my colleague was in charge of the discoverability features. So interaction features are things like comments or DM, um, you know, things like sticker stores start to become part of that because it's part of the conversation. Uh, and so it had aspects of 
both text and some like visual, but it was mainly text. And so, yeah, you can pull, you know, you can create a corpora of comments and, and think about whether or not that, it, you know, the policy that you have is, is kind of appropriately covering those comments or not. Um, you're looking over data from moderators, you know, that have been tagged with certain policies and, and kind of doing QA on that. So there's a lot of linguistics to do in order to make like data informed policy development mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, yeah, an inc absolutely incredible learning experience for me. I, it was a year and a couple months, but it, I feel like I learned two years worth um, of, of just information about how to, how to work on a product team, how to work with a, with a product team, um, how to uh, justify things. You know, as a policy person, you're always being asked, is this okay? Are we, are, can we tolerate this level of risk? What is the risk? And so it's your job to go and research what the risks might be, what have happened with other companies and put together your kind of assessment. And so sometimes you win and sometimes you don't, you know, sometimes your, your assessment was convincing enough and they say, okay, you know, I was able to put together something that, that paused a, um, a launch of a, of a huge, a huge feature that, um, is already now it's been launched globally and it still hasn't been launched here because of some of the things that I raised. Um, and so I was really proud of myself for that. Uh, but it was constantly really scary, you know, because it felt like, how can I uh, make sure that I'm thinking of all the risks for all of these products and I've done a good enough job? You know, it's this, the problem space is, is huge. It's impossible. And so you have to be able to cut off at a certain point and say, we've stack ranked, we've prioritized. This is all we have for now. We can always come back to it and move forward and, and be able to sleep at night with that. Um, and so that was another really, really tough uh, thing that that made me really change the way that I approach my whole life. Like I've learned so much about mindfulness and meditation and all of this and how to kind of um, work in a space where you're dealing with harm and you're looking at harmful content and you have that potential for vicarious trauma when you're watching other people experience trauma. It can build up in yourself. You know, we're empathetic beings. We, we, we feel other people's pain. Um, and so how to like release that in your day-to-day -day life and make sure that you're not slowly kind of, you know, becoming that, that boiling kettle. Right. Um, and so I, yeah, I really like implemented so much of that into my personal life and I'm really grateful for that. Um, yeah. And then now I just, I just actually uh, left TikTok a couple of weeks ago and now I'm getting ready for my next position, which is going to be at Meta. It's a contract position and I'm going to be doing some red teaming. So I'm going to be um, kind of prompting a model and seeing if I can get it to do naughty things and then uh, finding a way to categorize the outputs and make that, you know, synthesize that into something that's useful for the uh, mitigation team. Yeah. <laughs> what you've been doing, uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking about it and it's an area that I think to date has not employed linguists as much as it should, this, you know, things like content moderation and policy and what mm -hmm, words should yes. be on a list and how different, I mean, as we say, you need a linguist for that. Like you really, really, yes. really need to have linguists, not engineers. I mean, you need some of them, but linguists should be the ones who are making these decisions because we're the ones who understand how language actually get used and what it means yeah. to people. So I'm really glad that you were part of that and that companies like TikTok, as you said, you know, they don't really know what linguists are like. Well, big surprise, mm -hmm. nobody does. But now they do mm -hmm. because you were there yes. and they, they learned from that. And that's just so awesome. So it, it all just sounds really amazing. And I, I feel like this area of um, 
product service stuff from companies that have online communities is going to be just such a ripe area for linguists employment yes. going forward because it's never going to get any less. <laughs> it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the amount of content moderation that's going to have to go on is is always going to increase perhaps exponentially at points. Um, yes. I also just wanted to circle back to what you were saying about you know, knowing when to stop. And I think that that's something that's really important for people who are leaving academia and are used to the academic model where you don't stop, right? Like, unless you've got a publishing exactly. deadline, you just keep going until you've exhausted the resources or you just can't do it. But in industry, there's always deadlines and, and you can't just keep going until you're perfect or you find the right answer that's going to work for everybody. Like, product needs to be shipped, it has to go. Yeah. So you have to get used to working with the model of it's not perfect, but it will do for now. And maybe we can come back to it later. And, you know, I've done that in my own career and it's it's uncomfortable, right? As, as an academic, you want to keep going. Exactly. And you want to find the right answer, but that's just the way you it is. You have to be so scrappy. Some, you have to you kind do. of and, pull it together yeah. sometimes. Uh, and you have to be emotionally prepared for that. Yes, emotionally. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I have felt, I went to the um, Association of Computational Linguistics conference this year in Toronto, and it was my first time at a, um, you know, huge linguistics conference like that. And it was also my first time, you know, being in industry and kind of coming back because I had gone to a couple of small ones while I was in my master's. And I found I had such this kind of um, impatience or the sense of urgency where I felt like people were, you know, talking around things and, and going back and forth and, and arguing, oh, well, but yeah, but you can't even, and, and getting to a place where you couldn't even make a step forward. Um, I was going to these kind of talks, these like they have birds of a feather talks on certain, you know, on responsible AI and, and fairness and AI and things like that. So we were having these discussions and I found everybody just kind of getting stuck in places and, and always just kind of feeling like, okay, we have to go back to the drawing board in a way. Um, and I, you know, expressed to them that, hey, you know, I just want to share my perspective as someone from industry. We don't have the luxury of doing this whole, yeah. let's think about, you know, it, it's already in production when you show up and you're just trying to improve it. You know, you, you need to make or you need to make a decision because there was a current event. You know, there was a, you know, a terrible thing that happened in, you know, over the weekend. And now you need to decide what words are going in the block list and what aren't. And, you know, what words are, you know, what, what text we're going to feed to these AI models, you know, you need to decide how is, how is it doing? You know, is it, is it the recall? Is it correct? You know, that kind of stuff. Like you have to make those decisions. And especially for me, because I, um, if, if anyone has been following kind of the TikTok in the last year, there's been a lot going on, you know, with geopolitics and whether it's going to be banned and all this stuff. And, and so we, we split out into um, this org that was U.S. Data Security Org. So I was the only person who was allowed to look at this stuff. Um, and so I wasn't allowed to share it even. I was allowed to share it with my manager because she was within, but she wasn't a linguist. You know, she her background, she was had worked at the FBI, you know. So she was happy to give a second set of eyes, but didn't have that background. And so I was the one who had to make the decision. Um, and, and that can be really uncomfortable, especially, like I said, when you, the deeper you start to look into positionality and and, you know, making decisions for other folks, the, the more uncomfortable you start to feel with it, but you feel like you're making an impact, you're doing something. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, that is, is too, um, I've gotten too used to that now. I think it would be really tough for me to go back and, and, and not have that kind of immediate reward of, of 
knowing that what I did made some sort of impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, I totally agree. That That's so interesting and an important mind shift for people to be aware of. Um, you know, we've yeah. I've talked with a lot of people just about the personality and the mindset that you have to have to be in industry. And I think there are different jobs where that kind of pressure to produce or to have a deadline or, or whatever, it, it varies, right? Like in the positions that you've had, it was sort of the most important thing that you had to do. Other positions mm-hmm. aren't quite so time sensitive. So you might have more yes. time to do the research or spend on it. And again, it's just important for everybody to know the kind of person that you are because if yes. you're not comfortable uh, making those about- decisions yeah exactly you have to be honest about it if you can't do it like don't take positions as project managers if you can't finish a project yeah. and don't take a position as a, a researcher or a data scientist if you can't stick with it for six months or whatever like you just yeah. got to know yourself and and what kind of place you're going to thrive in and you know that by experience, right? By having yes. a lot of experiences and, and and noticing what things aren't working for you and being honest about that. And and that was something yep. that, you know, is, is even hard for me because I, I am someone who really wants to think the best of everybody and every company and everything. And so I, I you know, tend not to want to criticize, but yeah. it's, it's necessary. It's healthy, um, I think, to maintain that kind of level of... Um, uh, honesty with yourself, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and process your own feelings about things. Um, and you know, those are the things that, that teach you, I think, like I heard you mention another podcast, you know, you flip those on their head and say, what, what is the thing that I would like instead of what this is, you know, <laughs> what is the opposite right, of this? Right. What is bothering me? And what would the opposite be? And I had to do yeah. a lot of soul searching about, you know, policy work in general. And I, I love the work of policy because it's all about getting the language right. It's all about getting the language, um, you know, to a point where it is defensible legally, where, you know, if it's, if we get deposed, you know, and the government looks at it, we'll be okay, you know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, mm-hmm. the moderators need to be able to understand it and need to be able to apply it in like three seconds and have heuristics about, you know, signals in the, in the message, you know, if it, it has to catch, it has to, you know, have two out of three signals to be able to apply this policy kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this off platforming and, you know, a request for contact need to be present or something. Um, and so that balance of like accessibility for folks who are just, you know, reading really quick and also, you know, the legal counsel is looking at it. Um, mm-hmm. I loved having to balance that. That was like so fun to me to work on the actual uh, policy itself. Um, yeah. However, the, like you were saying, the type of company really matters. So something like TikTok, I realize is always going to be, its product is, you know, current events and media and conversations mm-hmm. and interactions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not to go too far into, you know, what, uh, you know, the, the kind of criticisms that folks have made about social media, about Meta and, and Facebook, you know, during the elections and things and, and that, you know, um, controversy sells, right, or, or creates more interaction and creates more everything. And so that maybe that's always going to be what's happening. And, and that's the role of the, of social media. You know, if you want to look at it from mm-hmm. the kind of positive side is to create those spaces for people to have discussions and to work through things and to, you know, hopefully have, um, you know, productive conversations. Um, that's what we want. Right. And so the line between what makes a toxic conversation that's not really going anywhere and what is a conversation that's, you know, kind of discussing things that are newsworthy and, having important, um, you know, debates, we want to allow that. And so 
I realized mm-hmm. that a social media company like TikTok is always going to be about that. And so that means you're always mm-hmm. going to be, you know, in, super involved in the elections. You're going to be on call at certain times. You know, there's that's going to be part of it. Where if you're doing policy for a product like, I don't know, um, you know, if you're working at, at Salesforce and you're working on Slack or something, and maybe that's even a, a bad example because it's not just workplace anymore. Slack is used by a lot of people for fun, but mm-hmm. something that's like a workplace product, you're doing policy for that. It's going to be way different. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to be thinking about <laughs> are people, I don't know what, what the issues they have there. It's more like, you know, sensitive information being leaked or something or, or company, you know, company information right. um, in emails or something. So it's a totally different set of issues. And so you have to also realize that like the same job at different companies is going to be vastly different. Right, exactly. Um, and I will say one other thing about TikTok, because I've done work for TikTok with, with my company. And um, I I thought they were great. Like I really enjoyed working with people. But um, TikTok is a company that's based in China and mm-hmm. their owners are based in China. And there's always mm-hmm. going to be some cultural stuff that goes on. So this yes. is just something for people to keep in mind. If you're working for a company that's not based in the U.S., there's always this extra layer of yes. uh, cultural communication that happens mostly, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and there are also things that you will never be privy to. Also, um, sometimes mm-hmm. you'll be working with the team in America, and you'll all be like, yeah, great decision. This is what we want. They'll send it over to the higher-ups, and it will be rejected, and you'll never find yep. out why. <laughs> and and you know what? Yeah. You just got to shrug your shoulders and go, that's just yep. the way it is. And you can't exactly. take it personally and get upset about it. It's just how it is. And you learn to let it you know, roll off your back after a while. But it is, again, a personality thing. If you can't deal with that, don't work for a company where that's the structure because it will happen to yeah. you so many times and you're going to end up day drinking or something. You know, it can really get to <laughs> exactly. that kind of it, thing. It really can. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something that I was kind of prepared for in a way because of um, teaching English. Right. So I had already thought yes, about exactly. how communication yes. breaks down and what these little things are. And I had already taught, you know, to Chinese students as well. So I had some experience specifically with that culture and, and some of the um, communication styles there that I shouldn't take personally. Right. And that was one of the things that was kind of part of what I was referring to when I said I learned so much about how to work with product teams and things like yeah. that, that, you know, mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, what their role is and what our role is and how do we um, kind of uh, articulate that to each other to make sure that we understand the two roles that we're playing. And then that helps set the stage to not take things personally when we know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you can kind of be like, I'm playing devil's advocate in a way, right? Um, and, and that helped a lot, um, but it was definitely a learning process and, and seeing how, um, yeah, seeing how, uh, kind of meetings flow differently and everything like that. Um, and, and knowing when to feel comfortable speaking up and and when it was my time to speak up and when it was more something Mm -hmm. that, you know, legal Mm -hmm. should be covering or communications or PR or government relations should be covering. Um, that's not, you know, your thing to worry about. That was also really, uh, really difficult at first knowing the swim lanes. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I really appreciate that. I understand how all that structure works now because every company is going to have it. And now I kind of know how to pull some of that in, um, to whatever I'm working on, like this next job that I'm you know, going to be working on. I'm definitely going to be thinking about the policies from TikTok and what the, and I'll be looking at the policies of meta and thinking about how would this, um, AI system break those policies? You know, how would people get them to break the policy? So all of that always carries over that, that knowledge. Right. And and all of that stuff about your work interactions and all of it, it's all linguistics. So as yes. linguists, I think we all have a little leg up on people who don't have a linguistics background because it, it helps. Definitely. Immensely. Um, 
this has been a great roller coaster, man. You've done so many things, <laughs> so interesting. And I, you know, you're one of those people who has really, um, I don't want to say you're a self-made person, but <laughs> what you said about yourself before, you know, you're scrappy, you like to do things, you like to reach out, you like to network, has really served yeah. you well in amassing this really diverse skill set that you've brought to bear now on these jobs that you have. And um, it, it's really admirable. So congratulations on doing all of Thank this and, and where it's taking you. And I'm sure that it's going to continue to take you in really interesting. And, you know, at this point in, in the middle of the 21st century, almost um, <laughs> unexpected directions, right? Like who knows what's going to be coming up. It's, it's really hard to say, but uh, I, yeah. I think those skills that you've gotten will serve you really, really well, wherever you end up going. Yeah, and another another like new field that's that's opening up. I'll just mention this is prompt engineering. That's something that I'm also really interested in, and linguists should mm -hmm. definitely look into. It's a brand new job. Um, yeah, figuring out how to prompt uh, these AI systems to get what we want, how to kind of categorize and be a librarian of those prompts, all that. Um, so that's something mm -hmm. that folks should definitely look into. They're already starting to come up with some like little um, you know training courses and programs on how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Uh, is it okay if I put your LinkedIn link in the show notes in case yeah. people want to contact you perhaps for an informational interview? Absolutely. All right. I will do that. Well, again, Aubrey, thanks so much for spending all this time with us. I really appreciate it. And um, maybe we can check back in in a year or something and, and see how the new gig's going. Sure. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.